0: Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. This is episode 101, (laughs) and if you listened to the last episode, I've spent the last week of my life moving everything myself and my family owns across the state of Washington and the U.S., and I'd be worrying if I didn't say I was exhausted. Especially the move out process. We thought it would take one full day of actually moving out. We ended up staying in town for two more days. I think we were just a little bit ambitious. And anyone that lives outside of the US, you are free to roll your eyes at the crazy American that just has way too much stuff. It's absolutely insane. My husband and I were actually reminiscing about when he moved over there 17 years ago and I moved over there almost 15 years ago, we each just had a carload of a few items and like a mattress and a little trailer behind it. Like we just, we didn't have anything in here. We needed half of a storage shipping container and a small size U-Haul. So that's not embarrassing at all. We need to be rid of a lot and there will be more of that, but it, I also have some family collectibles and stuff that take up some room as well as I've lost a few family members. So the good news is the move is done. We are now in our new house. I, hey, I'm probably going to post a picture of my current recording setup on LinkedIn probably the day before you hear this or maybe the day you will, on Tuesday when it comes out. But it's ridiculous. I currently have my laptop and my microphone and my water bottle all propped up on two moving boxes. <laughs> so very professional out of here. Very fancy. But I'm in my new office. I am looking forward to making it Look like an office. I've already gotten to see some of our favorite family and friends that we just really don't get to see more than a couple times a year. So I do feel like this is a justified motive and a good idea. But as any of the change, whether it's a new job or moving or any other kind of change in life, it's there's a lot of uncertainty. But I think we just have to trust that gut feeling, especially as fraud fighters, we have pretty good ones. And do what we know we need to do and know that it'll work out in the long run. So today's episode uh, is going to be a little bit of a different kind of interview than usual. Uh, Instead of hearing me interview a fellow fraud fighter, I'm actually going to be the one interviewed. So this was a conversation I had with my podcast producer, Lucas Walker. He's also the founder of the Rolled Up Network, which Fraudology is a part of. And very proudly, I really enjoy working with him. Uh, and he definitely has a radio voice. You'll hear that in a minute. So this was for one of his podcasts, which is focused on all things e-commerce and direct-to-consumer, especially for Shopify merchants. And while most of you who listen to Fraudology regularly are professional fraud fighters, we've received several requests for an episode that focuses on the basics and the fundamentals of online fraud prevention and chargeback management, especially for people who aren't full-time fraud fighters, but have kind of been handed this responsibility. I think a lot of us who have been in this industry for over 10 years, probably at least some less than that, have had the experience of maybe being in customer service or another department and being handed like, here, can you figure this out? What are these chargebacks? What's going on? Why are we losing so much money? And so there are definitely people who find this podcast and who want to hear some of the fundamentals, the basics, the where do you get started, what do you do, et cetera. So uh, that's what this conversation is about. And especially with Shopify being one of the biggest platforms, I know that there are a lot of merchants on it. So there are a few specific Shopify nuggets in this interview. But for the most part, it's for, you know, any merchant that's under, I don't know, I would say probably 10 to 15 million in revenue a year that works online. However, I say that or that has business online. I say that, but even if you have been listening for a long time and have been in fraud for a long time, you may enjoy hearing this episode. It might just kind of remind you of some of the basics. You might actually be a thing or two that you hadn't thought of before. But also, I know that a lot of us in fraud, even if you're not a consultant, are asked by friends and family or smaller companies, hey, like, how do we know where the problem is or how can we prevent this chargeback or how can we get our money back? So maybe it will help you to kind of hear and explain it. I'm going to be explaining kind of the core philosophy behind online fraud prevention, the strategic and fundamentals of fraud to kind of different, a different audience. And so it might just help you be able to share that other companies contact you. Or like I said, you may learn something. Maybe I am overestimating that or underestimating that. I don't know. But in this episode, you'll hear me answer questions about the best strategy and approach to prevent losses due to chargebacks and why prevention is so much better and less expensive to your company than taking a more reactive approach and just letting it happen or saying it's a cost of doing business. There are ways to both prevent it as well as recover it. And that is something that I try to explain to a lot of merchants, especially those that aren't doing anything or or certainly aren't doing enough to save their company revenue. And Also, just to stop fraud, right? As we heard on the episode with Ian Mitchell at The Noble, there are a lot of crimes that are funded by online fraud. Really gross, yucky ones. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. Terrorism and human trafficking and drug cartels, et cetera. And so it is important, even if it's not about the money to your company, which I would assume that would be number one priority. It's also about just not letting these people steal from us. And that is important, especially those of us who have a very strong sense of justice, which I think a lot of you can relate to. I'll also answer questions about ways to diagnose and determine root cause of revenue loss. And what can be done once you identify the type of fraud issues your company is experiencing? It may not be payment fraud or it might not just be payment fraud. It could be coupon fraud. It could be and coupon fraud and abuse. It could be refund fraud and abuse. It could be referrals. There's just so many different, there's so many different types of seller fraud, depending on the type of company you have. It, it may not be coming in chargebacks, but there might be a significant loss to your company, as well as an expense in customer service and other pieces within the business. So I'll talk a little bit about that. And then i also talk a little bit about when chargebacks are received, what can be done to recover the money? And what, if anything, can you do if you lost a chargeback? So again, a little bit different from usual. And next week we'll be back with, I believe I am interviewing a fellow fraud fighter who did some pretty significant things for a very large, well-known company several years ago back in the day. And I think uh, a lot of you will really appreciate kind of, some of the things that he had to deal with and and figure out and diagnose uh, as well as some of the big wins they had. And then he's uh, been working for a card brand for several years since. So really good discussion. I'm also going to be having a discussion soon with a fraud fighter who is very well versed in prepaid card fraud and uh, gift card fraud. If you have specific questions about e- from either of those guests, let me know. sooner the better. I'm going to try to interview them this week now that I am sort of moved in. I don't have any leg room up against this moving box, but you know, by next week's episodes, I should be in a desk. And my husband did offer to build it, but he has done so much this week. I just told him to go sit in his man cave and chill out. And I am just fine. So one more update I just wanted to add before you listen to this conversation I have with Lucas is that Sion, the current sponsor of Fraudology, now has a Shopify app to help online merchants using Shopify identify potentially fraudulent orders that could lead to chargebacks. And they are especially good at international orders outside of the U.S. A lot of fraud providers, you know, that have an app on the Shopify store are, especially for verification as in verification of email and phone number and all that, are especially good in the U.S. It's a little bit harder outside of the U.S. Sion specializes outside of the U.S. They're actually Founded in Hungary and have offices in London, as well as now Austin, Texas. So I encourage you to check that out if you are on the Shopify platform and looking for a front fighting app. And now I will let you listen in on this interview with me, <laughs> along with Lucas Walker, owner of the Roll Podcast Network. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML,
1: Welcome to the DTCX On Demand podcast. This is actually the first episode that we are recording. So leave a comment, tag me on Twitter at Walker Lucas or join me in the DTCX community on Facebook. I would love to hear your feedback. This is your podcast and I only present it to you, so let me know how you want to hear it, what kind of content you want to consume. But I know you are not going to want to miss this episode. Joining me today is Chris Hendrick. she is a fraud fighter, part of the Rolled Up Podcast Network with the Fraudology Podcast. So if you like what you hear today, go give that a follow. And she has saved over $1 billion in chargebacks alone, brands like Etsy, Domino's, Christian Dior, and she's going to talk about some of the, the themes and strategies that she uses that you can use too in your business. And those are only the brands that we can talk about publicly. All the rest are under super, super secure NDA. I don't want to get sued. I'm not going to ask. Chris. welcome to DTCX On Demand.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, it's always a pleasure when uh, when we get to chat, and especially I've been putting in some work on on your podcast. So I've gotten to know all the the impressive things that that you you work on on a day to day basis. But overall, the theme it's really stopping fraud from impacting businesses of all shapes and sizes, and it could come in the form of refund fraud or stolen credit cards being used to purchase on the store. And then you get dinged with the, the chargebacks. So you have to pay the $45 chargeback fee. You lose your cost of goods sold. If you get too many chargebacks, you lose your payment processing. And it's just not really good to have chargebacks or fraudulent orders. And I guess that's really the the first question today is what do you feel is the biggest trend we're going to see going through 2022, starting now when we're recording at the start of the year. So I don't know if we're, we're through the holiday fraud yet, if it's just starting, but why don't you talk us through the typical fraud cycle in a year and, and what we can expect to see in 2022?
0: Absolutely. Starting with a softball. Yeah. So as you mentioned it really is about prevention. So for any company that has an online business or really anything where the credit card isn't present in the transaction. So that's phone sales, that's, you know, mobile apps, that's e-commerce, all of that according to Visa and Mastercard, they roll up into card not present merchants in a category where you actually take the liability. So if someone's using a credit card that isn't theirs, that's on you. And oftentimes you're getting that chargeback 30 60 90 days long after the you know the goods have been shipped off and so the cost is oftentimes more than 3x the cost of goods so if you have a $100 item that you've shipped off to somebody and then 30 days later they file a chargeback saying that wasn't my credit card that's on you it's not they they'll call their bank and get their money back but their banks getting that money from you and and once that happens there's not a lot of repercussions you can do now if you can prove and and have compelling evidence and all of that you can sometimes get that money back but it's much more challenging so i've always had the really lived by this mantra that prevention, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I mean, I don't know, perhaps it's just something I made up in my head. I'm teasing, you know, but it really is true when it comes to chargebacks. So preventing those from happening, identifying what does the fraudulent order look like? What What does it look like when somebody isn't using their credit card? And the bad guys are doing the same thing on their end trying to figure out how can we look as legitimate as possible? So it's a continual game. Uh, In addition to fraud chargebacks, there's also what I don't like the term within the industry, but they call them friendly fraud chargebacks. It doesn't mean someone has a smile on their face when they're issuing the ordering from your site, but it means that when they get the bill, they're going to make the conscious effort to tell their bank that they didn't do it or that the item didn't arrive or things like that to get the item for free. And it's the same impact financially on your company. And then outside of chargebacks in general, there are just a mountain of other ways that people in general are are starting to find to take advantage of your business, to exploit your business, especially with the combination of everyone being at home for so long, e-commerce going up like crazy. Some consumers, especially in North America, have this drive to get something for nothing. And, you know, sometimes can have questionable ethics on that. So we're seeing a lot of issues with people claiming INRs, uh, inventory not received uh, fraudulently. But the challenge is that there are also some very common reasons why people are issuing INRs and, and very legitimate reasons with the carriers being overloaded, with you know, warehouses and distribution centers having to socially distance and just all the lists. And then you've got various weather issues in different parts of the world. And so it's just, there's so many impacts. Well, up
1: here in Canada with the, there was flooding and yeah. pretty much wiped out the only transportation from the West Coast, which is how a lot of goods come in. And mm-hmm. I heard, I don't know if it's true, but I heard that they actually had to divert the trains down through Seattle and Washington and then back up to where they could <laughs> rejoin the, the train tracks, which is another nightmare of logistics for overstraining an already exhausted system.
0: Yeah, the system was not, I mean, it already was kind of pieced together with, you know, duct tape and bailing wire. And then you add all these other pressures to it from whether it's supply chain, whether it's all these other carrier issues, you know, all the things that we've been dealing with for the last two years, it has just meant that the likelihood of businesses to lose money. Somehow seems out of their control, right? Oftentimes companies just mark this off as a cost of doing business, and there is a certain amount that will always be there, but there is a lot that can be prevented. And I think that's really the drum that I beat on a regular basis is looking for the signs, first knowing it's possible to prevent these losses in various areas of your business, whether it's coupon abuse or refund fraud or whatever category we put it in, there are definitely multiple ways to, in layers to be able to prevent them. But then also being able to balance that with the customer experience and with sales, because honestly, fraud has gotten a bad name over the years in e-commerce where, oh, you just kill sales. Well, I mean, if we're doing our job, right, we're killing the right sales that are going to impact your business 3X down the line and take away from all the other good sales. And also in the, over the last several years, Technology has gotten so much better that we can refine that and be a little more strategic and and surgical in the orders that we're preventing in the upfront. And then there's also things like human behavior impact and all that that you can change more globally just to impact not only chargebacks but your customer experience. Those go hand in hand. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that that's the the perfect segue into sort of the two areas that we can that we can cover today is first on. The identification and prevention of these fraudulent orders so what should merchants be looking out for and then also on cleaning cleaning it up if you realize that that it is coming in what can you do to to stop it if it's if it's not too late if it really is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure it happens there are expensive lessons to learn don't let it happen again Mm -hmm. and then some some actions that that you can reasonably take if let's say you you are out a decent amount what you can can do there. So let's start with the strategies of preventing chargebacks, fraudulent orders, fraud in your store. What are the first things that a, a a merchant or a business should be doing to prevent some of those fraudulent orders
0: so i think that we can obviously and you know me because you have edited hours and hours of my podcast you know i can talk about this literally for hours but i'll try to yep. sum it up so uh you know there's two different types of chargebacks that come in and if we're just being more global on that there's the true fraud that's when the payment method whether it's a credit card or an apple pay or a paypal or a buy now pay later or whatever that payment method is doesn't belong to the person who's doing it and then there are
1: Are tools like apple pay google pay i know shop pay has it out now are they more trustworthy than than just putting in a credit card like are they less likely to have fraudulent orders
0: trustworthy from the merchant perspective yeah. Not the consumer. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, overall, yes. Are there ways that, that bad actors get around it? I mean they get around everything. But because Apple Pay and Google Pay specifically are so honed into the device and authentication and id i mean i know my my phone provider and os knows me very well probably more than i know myself they know when it's me making a purchase right they know okay this is a normal size purchase for Carice, this is typical types of businesses she goes to this is you know all those those things and a lot of that data is going you're not
1: buying three thousand dollars worth of industrial kitchen equipment or Probably not something that that's just weird when you yeah. typically purchase 50 bucks worth of uh, makeup or something okay. not not yeah. a, that category
0: right right yeah 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 so it's they're they're looking at all of those things with AI these days they're looking at all those things but they're also looking at is this her device is this her is this her pat did she know the password or did she has to reset it those kind of things so at that level Apple and Google know us better than our bank, especially in North America, where the average person has maybe four to six different relationships with different credit card companies. You're not; They're not going to know you overall as much as your phone is going to know you. But that's good. And they have a lot of things in place for ID. Where the challenge comes for large merchants I work with, specific to these type of alternative payment methods, sometimes comes in where... The entity that owns all that data is not the one that owns the chargeback. So that can be very challenging, right? So Apple or Google or PayPal or whoever, they're getting all of those signals from the person placing the order. They know what device they're placing it on. They know all of the different entities. Whereas the only information that's really passed on to the merchant is the very basics. And so that can be a challenge as well, especially if there's some kind of fraud trend. but for the most, so I would never want to say that they're 100% safe. you're not ever going to get charged back at all. but they do by the nature of what they do, they have more insight into the identity of the person. Is this a brand new phone versus, oh, they've had this phone number on this phone for years. It's mm-hmm. going to be different. And and that's information that the merchant isn't going to know whether they use a credit card or a debit card. As far as just on any payment, you know, so you're trying to determine, you know, does this person own this payment method? and. There are some very basic technologies that I think are good for everyone to have. ABS address verification service. It really only works in the U.S. That's important. Not I would never tell anyone to stake 100 percent of their fraud on that. And I have seen people do that. Fraudsters often actually are better at knowing the victim's address than sometimes the victim is. Sometimes we'll fat finger something. So that's not a true, but it is something that is important not only from a fraud perspective, but actually depending on your pricing with your payment processor, you can get a reduced amount for passing on that information to the bank. Same with CBV, the last three digits on the back of the card or for last four on the front of the card. If it's Amex, those things are just you know things that you should have in place. However, 10 years ago, businesses were told if the address doesn't match or if the CBV doesn't match, do not approve it. That's not the advice I give. It is a signal. It is one indicator. Over, there are a lot of different types of technology that are out there now for various types of businesses, for different sizes of businesses that can help take it off your plate. And some of them offer chargeback guarantees. So if they approve an order and you receive a fraud chargeback, they're going to pay you back. So those are some great, great options, depending on your size, depending on a lot of different areas of concern and looking at. But some, in some ways you can just pay someone else to do it for you and make sure it's a great partner and, and that can be a great option. As you're getting into higher volume, you're gonna to want to do it yourself. And so there's other tiers. Just like in every part of e-commerce, there's all kinds of options for solution providers. I would say that in addition to all of that, common sense is probably one of your best tools for identifying fraud. If your average order value is 100 or $200 and you have someone who's placing a $5,000 order, Maybe they tried four cards. Maybe their billing addresses in one place. You know, they tried like four it's, cards before it
1: happened. It's easy for us to say. You mean that order that was fifty times your average order yeah. value and we're going so to a excited about never shipped before to yeah. with four different credit cards that they tried wasn't real. So why do? But sometimes now they'll ship to freight
0: forwarders, to. right? And now you have to look like Google the address and go, where are they shipping to? Oh, it's a freight forwarder that always ships to X country hmm, you know, just using that common sense, especially for lower transactions. I mean, and unfortunately, not all fraud is going to be that obvious, but those are the things that unfortunately, business owners and myself as one of them can get very excited about that big dollar order and be like, oh, this is awesome. They're just excited. Or oftentimes if you call, they'll have a big story ready to tell you, You know, it's for an orphanage or something like that. And so just really... Taking a closer eye and and does this make sense? And even just using free tools online to to determine is this person real? Is this who they say they are? Those kind of things can can be helpful. Are they everything? No, but they certainly can give you a good start.
1: So I think that the the point of the, the freight forwarders is really interesting because it, it's sneaky. Mm-hmm. Why do fraudsters place such large orders? What what do they get out of it with the the stolen credit cards?
0: Mm. They get are they trying product. to get
1: the goods? Is it Okay. So they are trying to, to get the goods for free that they when can we're talking about resell? Physical
0: or... goods. Yes. Physical goods, okay. You know, digital goods as far from gift cards to NFTs, to event tickets, to online gaming, that can be a little bit different motivation for the most part. And it's always going to be different, but for the most part, they're getting the goods either for themselves or to resell. And oftentimes it's to resell. They're getting it for free essentially, but they don't always go for the high dollar and sometimes they really like sales and others because in a way fraudsters have a budget. They just don't know what it is. They don't know what your credit Mm -hmm. limit is. They don't know anything about your account unless they've gotten access to that, which can be scary as well. But if we're just looking at strict payment fraud, they don't know if you have a $5,000 limit or a $50,000 limit. So they still want to keep it they want to keep the number down we definitely have seen fraud i mean i've been in it so long i can remember before the days of marketplaces like ebay and amazon and facebook marketplace and mercari and you know the list goes on and those are great businesses i work with a lot of them i know a lot of them they're not nefarious
1: you, you've got a story about Mark from from Facebook Marketplace <laughs> on on fraudology for for the avid listeners.
0: I do, I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the the story about the UK government looking at online fraud. Yeah, I've I've been in a long time since Mark Zuckerberg told me he had two employees in his loft apartment and couldn't afford to hire someone to look at advertising before it went live to see you know what was suspicious and what wasn't. So. Yeah. Sometimes I can turn into the fraud historian and I don't know if that's always, always important, but oftentimes fraudsters have the same tools. They just often will tweak them a little bit. So actually that history knowledge has come in handy when working with large companies and they're just trying to figure out what is going on here. And I'm like, oh, this reminds me of something we saw 12 years ago, this is just a spin on it. So a lot of it's human behavior. A lot of it is looking at, you know, does this fit? Is this right? Jiving down to the details. As you get into higher volume, you then want to work with a tool that can provide you with more fine tuning. So they'll auto pass the ones that look really good. They'll Auto decline the ones that are just super suspicious, and then they'll give you a small subset to look at rather than the whole thing. But it's not just credit card fraud anymore that we have to worry about because, quite honestly, it's gotten harder for them to get away with it because of this technology. So now, and also there's a whole new class of fraudster, for lack of a better term, that are coming up really with Gen Z. Where they're gaming the system and that's where we see things like refund fraud and we see things like friendly fraud is a very wide title but it's also a so very wide
1: thing what would categories friendly fraud is that when you you buy something but you know they've got a really generous return policy mm-hmm. so you say uh you know what i i didn't love it can you refund my money and then just continue to, to get the item for free
0: it really varies and different companies categorize friendly fraud in different ways. But some examples of what we would call friendly fraud in this side of the industry would be a scenario like that where I'm going to call my bank and say, oh, I didn't get it. Uh, or, oh, that wasn't me. I didn't make that purchase. The credit card companies made it so much easier for people to claim fraud back in 2011. They no longer have to file a fraud affidavit. They no longer have to get a new credit card. So it's really easy to do. And a lot of the credit card companies are bragging about it, right? When you see these ads or their credit card, they say zero fraud liability. Well, come on guys, who's footing the bill? It's If the purchase was made online or on a phone, it was... It's not your money, but isn't that great that you can look like the hero? Uh, So people don't even realize half the time that it's the merchant doing it or having to pay it back. But then there's other types, like my daughter's a teenager who doesn't or up until recently didn't have a debit or credit card. So I would purchase it or she would ask me and I would buy something for her in game or food delivery at school on a Friday or whatever that is. And then my credit card stored there. And so just because I said it once doesn't mean, you know, she could keep doing it over and over again. Now you best believe that kid has been given quite the talk. So she does, she always asks, but There's a lot of kids that don't even know that their mom's card's being charged or whatever it is. So that's an example of friendly fraud or someone else in the family's using it. Other examples are some companies also loop in INRs. I didn't get it, but in this case, I separate out friendly fraud INRs from refund fraud in the fact that these are... Friendly fraud almost always involves the chargeback system, whereas refund fraud is exploiting your customer service and your warehouse. So there's, and, and I know we'll be talking about that in a minute. So I don't want to, um, I don't want anyone to be like, wait, say more about that. I will, I promise. There's just a lot of areas of loss. And the difference is, I think what I want to get in, you know, what I want to make sure we take away with is when it comes to true fraud, you can prevent those on a surgical per account basis, per transaction basis. You can see, you can oftentimes with various signals and technology and just common sense say, hmm, that doesn't seem right. This one order is not right. For friendly fraud, you we can only go so far with guessing people's intentions when they're placing an order online. And so we don't always know that that one specific order is going to be bad but we know that that we can look, by looking at your chargeback data, and this is something I've done for a long time in my career, by looking at your chargeback data, we can figure out what were the things that all these orders have in common. Maybe we need to shore up our messaging on the front end. Maybe we need to describe things more detailed. You know, Maybe they're saying that the item wasn't as described. Okay. Well, let's look if we now have several orders or several chargebacks for the same item, saying the same thing. And this is a simplified example for a reason. There's a lot of other ones, but you know, then we can look at, well, what can we do in the upfront that isn't isn't going to impact anyone from saying, oh, I'm not going to place this order. I'm not going to buy this. But it's enough to explain to them what to expect, to set their expectations so that when they get that item in the mail, they're not saying, oh, this isn't what I ordered. They promised XYZ and this is much different. So honestly, at the end of the day, chargeback prevention in total, aside from the fraud piece, is really about customer experience. It's really about how can we convey the most to our customers? How can we make it easy for them to call our customer service line and ask for a refund rather than going through their bank and then adding up all those chargeback fees and everything else?
1: And I just uh, you teased it, and I'm I just wanted to to pass you to to keep going, but we we should wrap it up here, keep it under around thirty minutes. What's the the final piece of how customer experience teams can prevent fraud for for their businesses and for their companies, whether it's a solopreneur to uh, a huge publicly traded e-commerce company with a team of thousands around the world. What, what are those universal strategies that every customer experience team should be focusing on?
0: Yeah, and expanding fraud to be beyond chargebacks and also include this group of behavior we've seen over the last two years that has just been impacting the biggest guys right now, which means that for the most part, the smaller guys aren't really dealing with it yet, but you will as soon as the big guys figure it out. This is the way it's been with all different types of fraud trends for years. But anytime there is a person, whether they have the intent of stealing from you or just kind of want to get something for free or whatever that is on that spectrum, they're often interacting with customer service. First, Can they contact you? Is it easy to do? Do they know how to contact you on your website on what goes through on their credit card statement? Have you worked with your payment processor to have your phone number on the statement, to have a descriptor descriptor that they recognize? I've seen that impact companies chargebacks overnight, almost just changing the descriptor on the credit card statement to be something that the customer recognizes and not the parent company or something like that. So making sure they can contact you. But then also, I think more than ever, customer service Teams are being exploited by fraudsters pretending to be the the real account holder. And, oh, I just need my password. I left it somewhere and da, da, da. You know, the bigger the story, the bigger... Yeah, all that. But those things also happen in real life, legitimately. So you know, there's that all the way to people claiming that something happened. You know, Once they have your item, they can claim anything they want to not have to pay for it, especially refunds and customers always write and all that. So just having a little bit of a lens to... Sometimes it's about going above and beyond on customer service, but you're also learning something. So one example is that somebody placed an order and I'm not sure if it's them or where it's going to or anything like that. And I want to know more. I can pick up the phone and call them. I can pick up the phone and call them and say, hi, this is Carice from the fraud department. And we want to know why you're ordering this. Where's it going to? Who's this person? Why are you spending so much? Okay, well, they're not ever going to wash out with you again. Or I can call and say, hey, this is Carice from, you know, X Merchant. I would really appreciate your order. Would love to know how you found our website. Let them answer. Love to understand, who are you shipping it to? This is just a courtesy call, but we're getting that information. So there's a way to do it. And that goes through everything in your business. This is just a quick, small bit of tips, but really looking at it from a customer service lens of how can we learn more about our customers to know that they're legitimate, while also helping them think that, wow, they have really good customer service. I used to tell my team when I was a frontline Fraud manager, that I want when they have to talk to somebody and say I'm sorry we had to cancel your order. I want that person at the end of the call, at the at the right before you hang up to say thanks so much. You know, they just got bad news, but they're thanking you for it. They're having a good you know experience. The other thing I would say when people say that customer experience and fraud don't go hand in hand, think about when you're the last time your credit card was stolen and you looked at your statement and you saw whatever company it was that charged your card fraudulently. Did that make you want to go spend money at that company and go check it out? Probably not. It made you think that they weren't secure. So that's a really good reason why putting your customer first in all things, especially even in protecting your company, can change the game, honestly, and and really help you retain customers while retaining revenue.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, a great place to wrap it up because I think that really is the, the goal of being able to retain your customers while retaining revenue. that. That's the name of the game, especially as operations and shipping costs and everything mm-hmm. is only getting more and more expensive. You, you have to have that operational efficiency as, as dry as it is. crease always a pleasure. I know people can find you on the Roll Up Podcast Network with your show, Fraudology. Where else can people find you if they want to get in touch?
0: LinkedIn is probably the best way, uh, but also at chargelyticsconsulting.com. Mm-hmm.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Always, always a pleasure. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to give it a subscribe on Apple, a follow on Spotify and a review wherever you listen. If you want good karma for five-star reviews in your store this year.